there's a there's a change in our auditorium this morning. I don't know if you noticed it or not. Uh, I did. I got a front row front row seat to the change. But we do have a new piano um, that well, Leanne played wonderfully because you know, just Leanne. Uh, but this is a, this is actually a gift uh, from the estate of. Uh, Dale and Joyce DeWeese, Leanne's parents, and also Alma and Buell, Buell and Alma Billups, uh, Jane Ellen's uh, parents passed away, their estate as well. So a gift from our families to yours, from four people who love the Lord, loved his church, loved members that are here, so we're grateful for for that. Uh, I do need to begin with an apology. Uh, I need to apologize for Keith's sermon last week. He really went off the rails. I mean, brother, 42 verses in a single sermon. I think it's all those years in Uganda, right? Something. Uh, He single-handedly changed our uh, verse per sermon average. We call it VPS. Uh, In our Genesis series, he changed it from 6.9 to 9.2. Those are not, uh, I did take the time to figure that out. Uh, it's It's just crazy. So if you got whiplash last week from our brother, I mean, I'm sorry, but don't worry. I I'm going to slow down our pace this morning. We're actually going to cover one word, the word when. I just need to, no, no. not that slow. Uh, Please turn in your copy of God's word to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. I really am a big fan of computers and technology. I study, I preach, preaching right now using an iPad. I type my sermon using a laptop. Uh, I read on a Kindle. I use the keynote slides to help you pay attention, at least that's my intent, Uh, but there really is something that's innately superior about real things, Uh, the feel of pen on paper, uh, reading a book printed on real paper, uh, watching someone write with chalk on a chalkboard. Uh, Have you ever cleaned classrooms? Uh, I started cleaning classrooms when I was in sixth grade, Uh, did that through ninth grade, Finally got a break, and then in college got a job cleaning once again and ended up cleaning classrooms again for a couple years. So I've cleaned a lot of classrooms. Uh, Chalkboard erasers, they're the worst, Um, like black lung from coal dust and then whatever comes from inhaling the chalk dust when you beat those erasers. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, But they're, they're awful because they just smear the chalk dust around the chalkboard. Then instead of a blackboard, you have a a gray board uh, by the end of the day. And eventually it it could become unreadable, it could become unusable. And do you know what you have to do to fix that? It's actually a fairly easy fix. You get a bucket of water and you get a sponge and then you wash the chalk dust off of the blackboard and it is really satisfying. Just, Just blot all of that dust off of that back blackboard. And really, it's the only way to get it as, as clean as new. Sometimes you have to go that deep. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not imbo- abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw 
that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I want to admit at the outset this passage is both frustrating and fascinating. Uh, It's frustrating because what is probably the most interesting question about this passage is, I think, the least relevant part of this passage. Uh, But, you know, expository preaching, no stone unturned, so let's just go ahead. Who are the sons of God? Uh, There are three decent options and good reasons, honestly, to keep or reject all of them. First, maybe the sons of God are angels or demons who marry and then impregnate human women, probably by taking on human form. Uh, Two, the sons of God are ancient kings, men who set themselves up as God-like rulers, like Pharaoh was worshipped, Nebuchadnezzar was worshipped, the Greek and Roman emperors, you know, the leaders being worshipped that way. Men who set themselves up as God-like rulers, claiming their people's worship and then building harems harems for themselves, contrary to God's design. Or three, uh, the sons of God are the Sethites, part of the godly line of Genesis 5, but they marry the daughters of men, the Cainites, not Canaanites, Cainites, part of the ungodly line of Genesis 4, and this type of intermarrying between believers and unbelievers is forbidden by God, uh, for the result is almost always, probably just always, uh, unbelief and unrighteousness. Uh, apparently, whatever Moses meant was probably plain to his original audience in a way that is not plain to us. And we could easily spend a lot of time absorbed in speculation about who they are, but I don't think it would be a very profitable use of our time Uh, Suffice it to say, whatever was happening, it was not pleasing to God. This passage is frustrating, but it really is also fascinating. It's a transition passage. It transitions us from the story of the generations of Adam, chapter 5, verse 1, to the story of the generations of Noah, starting in chapter 6, verse 9. It's a very necessary prologue for the story of the flood. It reveals that sin is not merely a problem of certain individuals, Adam or Eve or Cain or Lamech. Instead, it is a universal human reality. And it gives us insight into the heart of God for the first time in Scripture. And that's really what I want to consider today. The phrase in verse 6, it says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. According to one author, I did not fact-check him on this, uh, but this idea of the Lord regretting occurs in reference to God 34 times in the Old Testament. The King James Version translates this here and other places as God repenting, uh, which sounds... uh, which kind of brings, I think, an extra confusion and makes it even more troubling than the concept is in and of itself. Uh, so I prefer what we see here in, in modern translations, that, like the ESV, um, fairly consistent to translate the word as regret when talking about something that has already happened in the past. And then it uses the word, translates it as relent, 
when it's talking about something that is planned for the future. Uh, regretting something, God regretting something that's taken place in the past, something that he's done. God relenting from something that he had promised about the future. And here's the trouble. Uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was Star Wars Day, may the fourth be with you, uh, I bought a bunch of junk food. Um, so we, it was the night of rehearsal, I think, can't find anybody, the Smiths rehearsal. Uh, so we got to it late, but we had to watch a Star Wars movie, we bought a bunch of snacks, and I ate a lot of snacks, uh, just like Doritos and pretzels, and I put it on a bowl, and then I emptied that bowl, and I went back, filled that bowl, and I emptied that bowl. I might have gotten a third bowl. It's a problem. Uh, and then by the end of that night, I regretted eating all of those chips. I'm going to do it again, but I regretted what I did. I felt the aspect of it, and, and that's a silly, but I could also look back at like some relationships that I had. I'm not going to go into details about, uh, but just different relationships that I've had in the past that I regretted decisions that I made. Like, ah, I shouldn't have, shouldn't have done that. Wish I hadn't done that. Um, sometimes as a parent, you um, get upset, <laughs> right, parents? You get a little bit upset, sometimes rightly upset. Sometimes that rightly upsetness turns into not right, wrongly upsetness, right? Not rightly upsetness anymore, but, but our foot kind of is down and it's going to dig in a little bit deeper. And so it's just kind of like, I can't believe you didn't do the dishes, um, you're never going to watch TV for the rest of your life. Boom, right? Gavel, hit. And then Leanne might come along and be like, okay, like, I, I, like, I like the result of no TV. That's good. TV's not good. But really, for this one offense, like, maybe we need to dial that back a, a little bit? Like, oh, okay. Like, all right, girls. You know, I was upset. You were wrong. I was also wrong. Um, let me pull that back. Let me, let me relent from that. I really shouldn't have made that type of an edict. And that's the trouble. Because um, the Bible speaks of regretting, and we can think of where we regret. And, God, and the Bible speaks of God relenting, and we can think of where we would need to relent. But I hope it's obvious to you that God isn't like that. Just, it can't be the same thing. Because both of those are just are folly or mistakes that I've made where we wouldn't say that of God. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't overreact. After all, he is, he is omniscient, right? He knows all facts. He knows all information. He knows it all the time. He's also all wise. He's not a computer database just knowing things. He's all wise. He understands how all of the facts and information fit together for what is best. And he is eternally sovereign in his plans and purposes. What was it? I saw a sign at the verdict, effortlessly sovereign. It was good. Effortlessly sovereign. Everything is working according to the counsel of his will to fulfill his purposes. And yet, perfectly aligned with these truths, we still come to passages like this one in Genesis 6 that speak of God changing his mind. Regretting something that he has done or relenting from something he said he would do. And it's not somebody else just saying that. It's God saying, like this verse, the Lord regretted and said. So how are we to understand this? What, what does the Bible teach about God changing his mind? Now first, we see God does change his mind by regretting sinful humanity. 
God changes his mind by regretting sinful humanity. Whatever these unions were in Genesis 6, they were clearly forbidden by God. And the sinfulness of those unions and the effects of that sinfulness uh, was so widespread that the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And I've always heard that this 120 years was some kind of a limiting of lifespans. It happens a couple other times. Uh, but it isn't really what we see when we continue reading in Genesis. Noah or Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they live longer than that. So it's just like that doesn't really seem to fit even like uh, cohesively inside of Genesis. Uh, instead, I think that this 120 years is actually the start of a countdown, a countdown to the flood and its destruction, as if God is saying, there are 120 years left until I act in judgment. That will be the end of it. Like, I'm going to withdraw my spirit that like Genesis 1-2, I think, right? The spirit is hovering over the face of the waters and brings order out of the unformed, unfilled creation, and now it's just like the Spirit's going to withdraw, and it's going to descend back into that unformed, unfilled, as the waters return, right? These early people had rejected God's authority. They had replaced God with themselves. They set themselves up as gods. Not just if it's those kings thinking that they are gods, but every one of those individual people, just like us, setting ourselves up as God. This is what we all do with our sin. Let's think how, we, how it plays out. So, so follow along with this. If we think we are gods, we will not only reject the true God's rules, we not only reject his boundaries, but we're going to set up our own. Right? We will have our own rules, our own boundaries. It's not God's, but it's ours because we are the new gods. We're going to do what is right in our own eyes. And what does that inevitably lead to? When we set ourselves up as God, rejecting God, his boundaries, setting up our own boundaries, doing what's right in our eyes, we feel like we have the right to use other people in order to please ourselves which is a definition that we could give for what's behind immorality. I'm in charge, my way is right, and I'm going to use you to please me. And then we feel free to punish those who break our rules, punish those who hinder our pleasure, punish those who reject our authority, which is violence. With the sins of immorality and violence specifically, but other sins could be included in this as well, when we're committing sins like these in our minds and with our actions, we are declaring to everybody else around us, you are mine to use and mine to dispose of as I see fit. Do you hear that that's, that's God-like language? We really need to give careful thought about, uh, about how we treat other people. Because no one else is yours to use or dispose of. We are God's. Capital G-O-D apostrophe S. We belong to God. People don't belong to us. But that's what was happening when we do these sins. That's what happened with their sins. 
We see immorality in whatever is happening with these marriages. We see violence as what God is calling them to account for at the beginning of next week's passages. The wickedness of our ancient ancestors was great. It was significant. It was widespread. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, across the whole land. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Could Moses give any more specific, right? All of it, only continually. The sinfulness of humanity had spread like a virus, infecting every part of every one of them. Sin is a pervasive corruption, like a bad smell that seeps through every crack and crevice to fill your entire house. Every intention, every motive, every desire was pro-self and anti-God. The evil in each man and woman's heart was, had, had full reign. And we see that as well when, when today our hearts, even though we're divine image bearers, that we use and abuse our fellow divine image bearing humans. We degrade them and we dishonor them. And in doing so, we degrade and we dishonor the God who made them. And the further that we as humans drift from God, the worse this gets. As a society, our own society, we've been okay with immorality for quite some time. Probably always. If you think, it's like, well, it wasn't a problem in the 50s, then just talk to somebody who was around in the 50s. Sometimes it was hidden. Sometimes it uh, it was shameful to have it revealed in the light, the immorality that was just everywhere. Sometimes we weren't supposed to talk about it. Other times it was flaunted. But sin has been acceptable to us as a society as long as it stayed within certain boundaries. But now those boundaries are being abandoned, right? And much of America uh, is now outraged, like within the last few months. It's like we were fine with sexual sin and immorality as long as it was within certain boundaries we thought it were acceptable. Now those boundaries have been breached and the same sin is now being revealed in other ways. And now we're like, no, 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 now it's, now it's bad. Here's the thing, it's, it's always been bad. Gay and lesbian marriages, transgender athletes, homosexuality, transgenderism being forced on children in schools, drag queen story hours, right? immorality abounds. Violence as well, mass shootings, mob riots, abortion, child abuse, these things are on the news practically every day. It's like we're reading Genesis 6 as a script rather than as a warning. How do these realities of sin make you feel? When you hear or you read or you watch the effects of profound sinfulness, how does it make you feel? Do you feel disgusted? you feel sorrowful? Do you feel angry? Do you, do you crave justice against the wicked? How did this sin make God feel? In verse 5, God saw this wickedness. Then in verses 6 and 7, we read, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It's 
very common, it seems, to overemphasize God's love as if he only ever has good and happy feelings towards everyone. And this is clearly not the case. And there's good reason for him to not be happy and lovey toward everyone. We want him to be that way toward us. Everybody wants him to be that way toward them. Uh, we want him to be happy and lovey toward the people that we love. Uh, but we don't want him to be happy and lovey toward those who would harm us or harm those whom we love. And really, I think that's fairly universal because of that need for justice, that eternity, uh, that God knowledge in our hearts. So we, and we're, I think you're rightly aware, as just as a people, I think you're rightly aware that we can overemphasize God's love and we shouldn't do that. But we can also swing too far the other direction and overemphasize God's wrath to the point where we think he's so disconnected from creation that he coldly administers justice like we would swat a housefly or smash a cockroach. But that doesn't take into account what God has revealed about his emotional response to the disgusting corruption of the good world that he made or the perverse violence that his image bearers had given themselves over to. Now, God's emotions are not like our emotions. He is not like us. But we are like him, which I think means that our emotions are, in some sense, a shadow of his emotions. Joy and sorrow and anger that we feel, and we know that they can go all out of whack, but in some sense, they, they are a shadow pointing us to a God who speaks of himself as rejoicing and grieving and being angry, emotional responses to things. And we know what these emotions feel like. Like as I talk about joy or happiness or a sadness, a grief and anger, you know what that feels like for you. I know what that feels like for me. And then we read of God showing those same emotions as well. And there's supposed to be a type of a connection there. God's emotions are perfect, just like everything about God is perfect. Uh, his emotions are also consistent with his character. God's emotions don't ebb and flow in the same way that ours do. His emotions don't fight with each other like ours do. God is a perfect unity in all that he is and all that he does. Our emotions can easily become out of control and really control us. But God cannot be so controlled by his emotions that he would act contrary to his character or contrary to his purposes. That's impossible. Perfect unity in all that he does, including emotional responses like we read about in texts like these. But we do read about God's emotional responses to things, especially the sinfulness of humanity. So we shouldn't try to pretend that it isn't there. Uh, this past spring, February, I don't remember when I started, maybe February or so, I finished them in February, I made some wooden swords uh, as props for a theater production my sister is involved with or was involved with, they wrapped up. I only stipulated that when they were done, I didn't want them to just get tucked in a box and put with other props and costumes. I wanted, uh, I wanted my nephews to be able to play with these wooden swords that I had made. Well, what if using the swords that, that I had made for them to enjoy together, they just went crazy and they started beating and stabbing each other and their little sister and their mom, my sister and their dad, my brother-in-law, their neighbors and on and on. And they just somehow on the island of Kauai, like uh, some like 
foisted this rebellion, started with these just wooden swords that I'd shaped in my garage just for them to be able to play with, right? How would you expect me to respond if the things that I had made had caused that? What would I say? I would say, I wish I had never made those swords. I would say, I regret making them. I regret what I did. I'm not claiming responsibility for their violent actions, but their evil happened using something that I made. I feel the weight and the sorrow of that. It was not at all what I had intended. Even though the swords had the capacity for violence, they weren't designed to be used violently. Similar to this, I think, God says that he regrets the creation of humanity because of their sinfulness. And while everything that happens is part of God's plan, all sin is also contrary to his will. And we've mentioned aspects of that before, right? That which God desires and reveals for people to do and that which God has ordained. All sin is contrary to his desire. All sin is part of his plan, but yet it still grieves him and it angers him and he will act in judgment against it. But as we think about the right and good truth of God's anger and his wrath towards sin, we still must remember passages like Ezekiel chapter 33, 11, not talking about the nations, talking about Israel. God says, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But I have pleasure that the wicked would turn from his way and live. So he calls out to his sinful people with judgment looming, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Do you hear the heartbeat of God in this? And then we read it in the New Testament as well. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. I don't know if Keith will touch on this next week at all because there's definitely a flood connection happening here. He's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. Why hasn't God's judgment fallen yet? Where is he? Right? That's the question looming in the hearts of a suffering people of God. No, he's not slow, but he is patient. And he's patient toward you. He was patient toward you. It didn't happen. I don't know when, when did you trust Christ? Was it 10 years ago? Right? God's judgment should have fallen 10 years and a day ago. But he was slow, patiently waiting so that you would not perish, that you would reach repentance. God's patience continues. Not eagerly desiring to punish, although he will, and there's nothing wrong with that. It is good. But yet hear the heartbeat of God revealed in these type of things. God grieves over the sinfulness of his image bearers, and so should we. If we love God, if we are being transformed by his Holy Spirit into the image of Christ, then we will love what he loves, and we will hate what he hates, and we will grieve what he grieves. Rampant immorality and violence, image bearers versus image bearers rejecting God's authority. Do you grieve the sin that is enslaving the people around you? All of those news stories, is there any grief in your heart? 
over people who have and are giving themselves over to more and more enslaving sinfulness. Or every time they suffer, you just like, ah, good. They got what was coming to them. Well, you didn't get what was coming to you. What's the difference? Do you pray for your fellow image bearers lost in their sin and at enmity with God? In Genesis 6, God is grieved by the sinfulness of humanity and his patience and long-suffering are reaching their perfect limits. Imagine a, a city, a city that's built at the base of a massive dam. Uh, each day, the residents of the city carry bucket after bucket of water up and they dump them in the reservoir created by the dam. Just mindless of the fact that with each bucket, they are actually adding to the destruction that their city will face if the dam is released. That's the multiplication of these things that are happening. The Lord saw the wickedness and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. So verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. God looked at the blackboard of creation with chalk dust smeared all over it, and he said, it's time to get the bucket and the sponge. I will wash away the filth of sin that has corrupted my world. It's time to open the floodgates, release the waters of wrath that have been held back by the dam of God's patience and long-suffering. God has now declared his intention to judge the inhabitants of the earth. You know too much of Genesis for some of these stories to stick out to you. And so do I. You don't linger in Genesis 6 verses 1 through 8 because you know what's happening in 6, 9 through 7 and 8. We rush past because we're so familiar with it. But if we were to stop right here and hear what God had said, first time readers looking at this, in a progressing reading of Genesis, not looking ahead, no spoilers, we don't know what will happen yet. We might ask, if this was our first time, we might ask, will God be merciful and gracious again? <laughs> Probably. I mean, after all, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But he didn't punish Adam and Eve to the greatest extent possible. He didn't punish Cain with the severity that he deserved. As far as we know, he didn't punish Lamech at all. This leads us to a second truth about God changing his mind. God does change his mind by regretting sinful humanity. God also, he changes his mind by relenting from judgment. Relenting from judgment. Let's, if we were to go forward, we could go to Exodus chapter 32. We would read about Moses being on the mountain with God, receiving the law from God, and the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, right, written with the finger of God himself. And Moses had stayed up there for so long that the Israelites got restless, and they demanded that Aaron make gods for them. So Aaron fashioned a golden calf, and he called it Elohim. He called it God. He, he called it Yahweh. Let's have a feast to the Lord, worshiping this 
statue of a golden calf, just like we used to see in Egypt. And they offered sacrifices to this idol, and then they began to engage in immorality as well. There are paths that are always followed when people reject God. And then the Lord says to Moses, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And then later in that passage, we read Moses implored the Lord his God and said, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And it says he did. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Sometimes the Lord relents from the judgment that he had spoken. Yet there were still consequences for the people. Even though they didn't all die, a few thousand of them were killed by the sons of Levi. And and the Lord sent a plague on them as well. Later, Moses himself would disobey God's command by striking the rock instead of speaking to it. And in consequence, God did not allow him to enter the promised land. But God's one who relents from judgment, right? So did Moses get to go into the promised land? What's the answer? No. Oh. Okay. Well, in Judges, book of Judges, there's a cycle of the people turning. They sin by turning from God to worship idols. And then God sends another nation to conquer and oppress them. And then they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And he relents from his judgment of them and sends a judge to deliver them. And that cycle just happens over and over and over in that book. God continuing to judge They repent, he relents, they're restored, they sin, sends judgment again. First Samuel, King Saul, disobeys God's command. God regrets making him king over Israel, declares that he will remove Saul from that office, and God never relents from that judgment. Then in 2 Samuel, King David disobeys God's command. God declares judgment on him and his family. And while God does not relent from that judgment, he, David's son dies in his infancy. Later, his son Absalom overthrows David's rule. He ultimately dies. But these unrelented from stories of God's judgment on David are woven into the same story of God establishing David's rule and eventually raising up Solomon as king. So I'm trying to go through the Bible, I'm trying to identify a pattern of when does God relent and how much and when does he bless and who are those type of things? What's the pattern that God is following here? And we just don't find it. We read in the prophets that there's examples of big and small acts of God's judgment against his people and sometimes he relents and other times he does not. And the point of this is that sometimes God relents from judgment against sin, but not always. Sometimes God relents from his judgment against sin. Other times he does not. The long-suffering and the patience and mercy of God is not something that anyone can presume upon. And it is foolish and sinful to put God to the test. Do you know what it means to presume upon something? It's kind of like a, it sounds a whole lot like assume, right? There's an arrogance to it. It's like, well, that'll just always be there. It'll always be there, right? If you talked to yourself in January of 2020, 
you would have presumed that there would be enough toilet paper in the store in April of 2020. Right? You just assume because it always had been and, and counting on it, taking it for granted. And there's a presumption that happens with God. Oh, he's, well, he's long-suffering. He's patient. Look at the, all these examples of God relenting from judgment. I guess he will always relent from judgment. I guess he will relent from the judgment against my sin. But he doesn't always do that. Presuming upon God means taking for granted that he will act the exact same way that he always has in the past. But one author wrote, God is personal, and he has his own purposes. He is not, God is not a mechanical dispensing machine, not a robot. God may relent of a severe judgment, but he may not. Scripture speaks of both of these things happening, because God is completely free to do as he pleases. And when God relents, it is because of his free grace. When God relents, it is an act of free, unconstrained, uncompelled externally, right? Grace. Another important point to think about in relationship to God relenting is even when God relents from judgment, I think we could say he never ultimately relents. It's sort of an extension of his long suffering. Consider this, every sin Every sin ever committed was either paid for on the cross or will be paid for eternally in hell. Those are the only two options. So even in a sense of the relenting from a temporary in time and in history judgment against sin, even when that does happen, that sin is not swept under a rug. That sin will be paid for. Every judgment for sin will either fall on the sinner or it graciously fell on the Savior. And we see those two options in Genesis 6 as well. On the sinner, righteously, justly, or graciously not laid on the sinner. And we don't know in Genesis 6 that it'll be on the Savior, but that's that's the shadow that's cast forward to the cross. We see this in verse 8, but, but <laughs> there's a break. We're following this path, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the word favor here has also been translated as grace. Matter of fact, the, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same word here, for favor, or for grace, as the word that we see throughout the New Testament that we love with. Maybe you know someone named Charis. Grace. I know a bunch of people. Charissa and Charis and all these, right? Grace. That's that word. That's what this is in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Grace, an undeserved, unearned kindness. And it's interesting as we're, we're talking about Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then as Keith will jump in on Noah, in the verse that follows, we read, Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. But wait, is the favor that Noah found in verse 8 the effect of his righteousness in verse 9? Or is the favor that he found in verse 8 the cause of the righteousness that we find in verse 9. That's a big question. 
Was Noah spared from the judgment because he was righteous? Or was he righteous because he had found favor and received grace from God? I think that's, the, that's a two-path type of question. Who receives favor and grace from God? Those who are righteous? Or is it those who are righteous have already found favor already are recipients of God's grace. So you need to think about that question. Matter of fact, let's do it together. Was Noah born a sinner? In Adam. Inherited, right? Corrupted human nature and guilt, condemnation. Can sinners work their way toward righteousness and earn God's favor? No. That doesn't start in the New Testament. That started in Genesis 3. And we just read more about it as God gives us more information. Either God repays us for our good works or God shows grace to us despite our sin. Do you, do you see those two options? Either God will repay you or is already in the process of repaying you for the good works that you have done or God is showing grace to you despite your sinfulness. Again, those are the two paths. One path, God repaying you, is the path of all religions. And the other path is the path of Christianity. That God shows grace to undeserving sinners for his glory. Which of those two options are the basis of your relationship with God? Please think about that. Which of those two options are at the root of your relationship with God? God would or is or might repay me for the good that I'm trying? Or... I am the recipient of undeserved grace because I'm a sinner. Only two ways that we can relate to God. Which way are you relating to God? God's gracious salvation is poured out on Noah even though he didn't deserve it. And God's righteous wrath will be poured out on the rest of sinful humanity and they deserve it. God shows grace by saving sinners who deserve judgment. God shows grace to undeserving sinners by saving sinners who deserve judgment. So let me ask you another really important question. Y'all seem to be awake. I hope that you are. Woo! Right now, do you stand under God's grace or do you stand under God's wrath right now? There's no partial. There's no in-between. You are either under God's wrath or you are under God's grace. I'm not asking what you deserve. I already know the answer to that question. You deserve God's wrath because of your sin and so do I. And on our own, our wickedness is also great. 
What does it say? The Lord saw that the wickedness of Peter Ambler was great in Hurricane, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Keith, Keith said your name's in God's favor. I could say your name's God's judgment here, but we'll, we'll pause because you're like, don't say my name. But it's true of you. Insert your name there. Our wickedness is great. Every intention of the thoughts of our hearts, only evil continually. We deserve to be blotted out. We deserve to be wiped clean from the surface of the earth like the sinful stain on God's good creation that we are. And I know that you don't deserve God's grace because the whole point of grace It's that it is undeserved. Saying you deserve grace is an oxymoron. That's like dry water or cold heat, right? Deserved grace. Is it a gift or is it a repayment? You can't have both. Which is it for you? Grace or wrath? Do you want what you deserve Or do you want what you don't deserve? If you are not under God's grace, then you are under God's wrath. God has been long-suffering, patient towards you to this very day. But if you remain under his wrath, it is the essence of folly for you to presume that that long-suffering will continue another moment. You have no basis for that guarantee. God's long-suffering toward you may expire today. The wrath that is being held back might be released eternally. You have no guarantee of tomorrow. You have no guarantee of next week. You have no guarantee of next year or 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. You don't have a guarantee even for the rest of today. Do not presume upon the mercy of God. You can't earn grace, but you can receive grace. Noah found favor with God. You, like Noah, you can find favor with God. God shows grace by saving sinners who deserve judgment. That can be you if it isn't already. Paul wrote to Titus, the the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And he wrote to the Ephesians, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, So that no one may boast, right? Insert Noah, verses 8 and 9. It is by grace that Noah was saved from the flood through faith in Yahweh. It is not his own doing. It was the gift of God, not as a result of the righteousness of verse 9, because Noah had nothing to boast about. So we see the grace of God revealed into the life of Noah, and the grace of God is available to sinners through faith, In Jesus Christ, have you found favor with God through faith in Jesus Christ? If so, are you you resting in that certainty that there is no judgment from God for you to fear? I'm going to, I got to rip 
I got to rip from it, right? You have next week. Maybe they'll forget. Are you in the boat or are you on the land? And if you're in the boat, the door is closed. And when the rain comes, you have nothing to fear. Because the rain and the flood fell on Jesus. Are you resting in the certainty that there is no judgment from God for you to fear? You deserve that judgment, but you will not experience it because Jesus took your judgment on himself. Jesus took it. The the punishment that you deserve. We sing about this, love singing about this. Jesus, friend of sinners, a crown of thorns you wore for me, bruised for my transgressions, pierced for my iniquities. The wrath of God that I deserve was poured out on the innocent. He took my place, my soul to save. Now I am his forever. Or we sing, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. God does change his mind by regretting sinful humanity. I regret that I made them. And he does change his mind by relenting from his judgment against sin sometimes, not always. We don't presume on that. There is one other point that I want to make, though, as I draw to a close. When we read about God changing his mind, regretting sinful humanity, relenting from judgment sometimes, but not always, I wonder if there's another question that might come to your mind. What about us? Will God change his mind about us? Will God regret that he saved us as he regretted that he made humanity? Does he not only sometimes relent from judgment, but does he also relent from salvation? Will God change his mind about his people? And the answer is no. God has never changed his mind regarding his gracious salvation. He does not regret his choice of you, his calling of you, Christ's payment for you, and he will not relent from his promise to bring you to eternal salvation. The grace of God in Jesus Christ for all who trust in him is so amazing and perfect that he never regrets those things never regrets choosing us, never regrets calling us to himself, and he will never relent from saving us. Paul rejoiced in his certainty about this with the Philippian Christians. I am sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it is right for me to feel this way about you all. It's right for me to rejoice. It's right for me to give thanks. Why? Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. For Paul, it's the death of Christ for us that proves this in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who could be against us? God's not going to be for us and against us. And if God's for us, then what does it matter if anybody else is against us? Because God is for us. Well, how do I know if God is for us? How do I know if it's sufficient? And he tells us. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? The death of Christ proves and solidifies and and cements the grace of God for those who would trust in him. There's no relenting from that. There's no regretting, right? It's this eternal salvation planned and purchased and, and then applied into our lives. So if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, why would God reject you? Is it because you're a sinner? He took care of that. He graciously punished his son on the cross for your sin. Why would God reject you? Are you afraid that God will figure out that you aren't good enough and don't deserve his kindness? That's like point one. I guess I talked about it at point two to point three, but like that's foundational. It's like God's going to figure out that you don't deserve his grace. Come on. Right? It's not new information that you're undeserving. That's why you're the recipient of grace. He determined to show you grace precisely because you could never be good enough to deserve his kindness. It's the whole point of grace. There was a Christ-loving pastor who once said, cheer up, you are far worse than you think. (laughs) Then he followed it up by saying, cheer up, God's grace is greater than you've ever dared to hope. When Satan tempts me, to despair and tells me of the guilt within and it's there. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. As we prepare to come to our Lord's table together, will you join me in focusing our hearts on that Savior, on our Lord? Jesus is the grace of God that has appeared bringing salvation to us. Forget 1203, we're going to have lunch, right? I don't know what yesterday was like for you. Yesterday was a pretty great day. I got to throw axes with some guys for Jackson, right? Well, worked to prepare for a camping trip. Yesterday was good. There's some stuff this week that wasn't good, right? Just difficult things that happened over the last week, last month, last year, right? And there's stuff that I have to do. You know, I could figure out lunch, figure out this, go celebrate with Noah, right? Get ready for a camping trip that we're going to take. So there's all these things, the list from yesterday and back, the list from this afternoon forward. Will you just join me in just laying down the list? Forget everything behind, forget everything in front, and let's set our affections on Jesus. Let's look upward and see Christ in heaven praying for you, interceding that God would relent from his judgment against your sin. Interceding, asking like Moses interceded for the people. Look upward, see Christ praying for you. See him eagerly waiting to come back to bring you to himself that where he is, you could be with him forever. That's what Jesus said he was doing. I'm gonna go I'm going to prepare. I'm going to wait for when I can come back for you. 
eager to complete the salvation that he purchased for us. Because of Jesus, we don't need to fear the judgment of God that our sins deserve. Because of Jesus, you do not need to fear the punishment of God for the sins that you've committed. Because of Jesus, we have a reserved place in God's house forever. I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. There's not just a lot of space. There's a room with your name on it that I'm going to go prepare, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to bring you to be with me. That's Jesus. That's the salvation that we have. His, his grace has changed everything for us. His blood has washed away our sin. The Father's wrath is completely satisfied. Once we were his enemies, and now we are seated at his table. So come to this table today. Your trust is in Jesus. And come with these words filling your heart. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. You've given us nothing that our sins deserve. Father, you said that you don't ever treat us as our sins deserve. You remember our frailty, that we are but flesh. The Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. You've had compassion on us. You've relented from your judgment that our sins deserve. You were patient and long-suffering toward us. Thank you for Jesus. Help us to worship him as we come to the table, to feast on him, not just bread and cup, but with our souls, with eyes of faith, that you may be glorified. Amen. So the elders come, the deacons.